Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? She replied, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately, she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Nick and I have recently revisited the very popular young adult trilogy, The Hunger Games, as one of our favorite teenagers invited Nick to read it and be in discussion with her. The series became popular when I was a college chaplain and provided incredible material for deep theological discussion with my students. Now, if you're not familiar, the series details a dystopian post-apocalyptic North American nation. The wealthiest of the country live in a thinly veiled version of Denver, Colorado. The other 12 districts vary in degrees of poverty and lack of resources. The most desperate among them being the inhabitants of what we would recognize as Appalachia. The corruption of the government leaders knows no bounds and is put on full display in a yearly televised competition, The Hunger Games. As punishment for a previous rebellion, the capital authorities select one boy and one girl by a lottery system for e- from each district and encourages them to fight to the death in a public arena. The winning tribute who outlives others wins a bounty of food, supplies, and riches for their district. The purpose of the Hunger Games is to provide shameless entertainment for the capital and her wealthy residents and to firmly remind all other citizens of the ruthless authority which governs their very survival. The author, Suzanne Collins, took her inspiration from the Greek myth 
of Thesis and Minotaur, in which Minotaur forces Athens to make sacrifices of young children as a punishment for past crimes. I realize this all sounds ridiculous, and you may be wondering why I would bother to mention it in the context of a sermon. Truthfully, I'm not sure it's any more ridiculous than the content of the gospel this morning, which doesn't mention Jesus at all, but speaks of the beheading of John the Baptist. Stick with me. The seemingly dystopian premise of the Hunger Games, other epic novels, and mythology before that can be so powerful because it cracks open humanity's deepest fears and vulnerabilities. Through the medium of storytelling, we are connected to that which feels impossible and that which we hope is possible. The Hunger Games becomes really compelling not because it features corrupt authoritarian figures and a compelling hero, but puts on display the power of love and sacrifice. In the first novel, we are introduced to Katniss Everdeen, who volunteers in place of her younger sister. It quickly becomes clear that this wise and generous young woman has no patience for the premise of this event or the capital's unavoidably corrupt motivations. Though her actions begin in the form of what we might call a teenage rebellion, she is shocked to discover that others find hope in the stand that she takes. What begins as irritation with a seemingly insurmountable system becomes a clarion call for resistance and justice is pure fiction, (laughs) but it is also meaningful fiction because it invites us into conversation about class discrimination, any number of ethical issues, violence, war, and power. The Hunger Games provides a window into both the most hopeful and hurtful sides of humanity, which makes for a story to which we can all relate. The same could be said about this morning's passage from the Gospel of Mark. It's a seemingly disjointed interruption to Mark's narrative flow with the reintroduction of John the Baptist, whom we met prior to the beginning of Jesus's ministry. But there is no parabolic interpretation that leaves us hopeful about the beheading of John. There's no miraculous intervention from Jesus himself that makes this okay. John is killed, and there is no way to soften that blow. I think the value in this story is best understood when holistically evaluating the value of stories. Put in a different way, we trust the Bible to tell us the truth about God because it tells us the truth about humanity, the good, the bad, and the ugly. One more time, we trust the Bible to tell us the truth about God because it tells us the truth about humanity. And this morning, we have nothing but ugly humanity on display. The setting of a banquet as the demise of John the Baptist immediately evokes the ritualistic act in which we memorialize Jesus' offering of his life for all of humanity, the Last Supper. This birthday banquet for Herod becomes a parody of the Last Supper, representing every possible way such a gathering could go wrong. 
It is a true study in weakness, not just of one character, but of the human condition. Now, evil could be understood as simply a perversion of good, but a more nuanced description might include an appreciation for all the underlying dynamics that lead to the point where evil comes to life. Unequal gender dynamics, power differentials, marriage and remarriage, lust and violence all play a role. The power of the story comes in the form of an invitation to understand the subtle frailty of the human condition. With a closer look, we are forced to consider questions like this. Which is worse, breaking a promise or killing a person whom you know to be innocent? There's a profound connection between the circumstances of John's beheading and Jesus' crucifixion. The parallel banquet stories shine a light on the transformative circumstances of both deaths. But only one offers redemption and grace. Both help us to understand the eternally flawed nature of humanity. Without the ugliness of humanity as a part of our corpus of scripture, I imagine the Bible would be far less accessible. So this morning, we are invited into this uncomfortable space to spend time wrestling with things like violence, divorce, corruption, and power. Because that is the world in which we live. But also, we are invited to, re- to remember the truthfulness about the canon of Holy Scripture, which is not simply a depressing reminder of the state of humanity, but the glorious and redemptive nature of God. Amen. Amen.